Exodus 20, verse 13. Give ear to the word of God, simple and to the point. You shall not murder, thus saith the Lord. You may be seated. Just trying to get the blood going here a little bit. Right? Uh, well, let's, uh, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his, his holy word to us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your law. Even as we sang earlier in the service, O oh Lord, how we love your law. We, your law, God, is our delight. Uh, Lord, we ask once again that you might be pleased in your kindness and mercy to us in Christ your Son, that you might fill us with your Holy Spirit. Teach us your word even this morning. Uh, give us, uh, by your Spirit, eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. And work in us by him uh, within us that uh, we might be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. And we ask all these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, what we've been doing, uh, for those who aren't often here, uh, we're going through the book of First John on other Sundays. But on the first Sundays of the month, we have uh, made it our, our plan to go through uh, the Psalms in order. And we took a break uh, from that to go through the Ten Commandments. It's one of those things that I think is very often neglected, even in Bible-believing churches, spending time in God's law. And so we are up to the sixth commandment uh, in our study through the ten, and which is simply, thou shalt not kill, and the King James and the ESV and others uh, put it as thou shalt, or not thou, you shall not murder. Uh, this commandment, as you heard and know, is very brief. It's very to the point. Uh, we aren't to commit murder. In fact, uh, I, I tried it very hard uh, when I'm preparing to preach on any given text, whether it's long or short. I try to make it my practice to translate the whole passage out of Greek or Hebrew, whatever the case may be. Sometimes that takes quite a while, especially with Hebrew. But in this particular case, uh, in the Hebrew, this verse is only two words long. So it didn't, did not take me, thankfully, very much time to translate this uh, passage. You could kind of, in a woodenly literal sense, translate it from the Hebrew as no murder. Like, don't do that. Like, that's really all it, it, it says. Um, and what, why is it so short? Maybe you've noticed uh, the many times you've read the Ten Commandments, uh, that Commandments 6 through 9 are very short. Some of the ones before it, there's quite a bit of explanation in comparison. Uh, the great Puritan writer Thomas Boston notes this. He says, uh, it is observable that this and the three following commands, that is 7 through 9, are proposed in a word, in a very, very short span of time, in a word, not because they are of small moment or small importance, but because there is more light of nature for them than those proposed at greater length. In other words, some of the commandments are so obvious and clear on the surface as to not need much explanation, despite the fact that I'm going to do quite a bit of explaining, more than you might have expected, going through this uh, commandment. And so, you know, some of the commands are not as intuitively clear and understood uh, to us as the commandment against murder. Uh, so you think of God's commandment uh, about the Sabbath command, very long, very detailed in comparison to the others. His commandment, the second commandment against idolatry, also very long, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, since the fall at least, it's not as intuitive to us, even as believers, to grasp and just intuitively understand why we shouldn't commit idolatry, what idolatry is, why we need to, to set one day apart uh, the Sabbath commandment, uh, one day in seven, and the blessings that are, are, are proposed by God and held out to us in that. Uh, and so, you know, naturally, when you, at least I hope this is still the case, naturally we react with horror at the thought of actual violence and murder. I know you watch movies and shows and see people get blown up and, oh, this is great, eat your popcorn. But in real life, we're horrified, I hope, still, 
by the very thought of murder. We react with horror at the thought of it. Uh, but we don't naturally, many of us, react with that same, the same instinct of how awful it is at violating the Sabbath. In fact, we're, we've become so accustomed to it, I think, that we don't think of it much at all. They're both still uh, evil in God's sight, and we should think of them rightly. But when it comes to murder, the commandment against murder, it's very clear on the surface of it to us. Um, most of us, I would guess, uh, you can tell me if I'm wrong after the service if you want, uh, most of us probably give this commandment very little thought, even when we're reading it. You know, we, we tend to be a little bit, um, you know, the story of the rich young ruler in, in the Gospels, Mark chapter 10 and elsewhere. The rich young ruler, he, on the surface it looked great. He came running up to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so what does Jesus do? Uh, I won't preach this as a different sermon or anything before the sermon, but Jesus basically gives him some of the, the commandments. You know, you've heard, you've heard you know, the commandments, and I forget which ones he, he propounded to him, but, you know, honor your father and mother, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. And you remember what the young man's response was? And think, keep in mind who he's talking to here, which makes it even worse. Oh, all these I've kept since my youth. I always say, been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Like, oh, yeah, I've already done that. I've already checked that box, Jesus. What else you got for me? And what was the point? Jesus gave him another thing. Oh, okay, you got one, th one thing you lack. And the guy was like, all right, you know, hit me, hit me with it. If you take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And it says that man went away sorrowful or sad because he had many possessions. In other words, not that. I'll do anything you want. Oh, you know, but I won't do that. The meatloaf song, right? Uh, he would do anything for the Lord, but not that. And, but what was Jesus showing him by what he said? Is, is salvation, do you earn salvation by giving, uh, giving away all your possessions? Is that the new gospel track that we should put in the lobby? How to get to, how to come to, to know the Lord and get to heaven? Sell all your stuff. And, of course, what we do, most churches would do is, well, sell your stuff and give it to the church and we'll take care of it, right? Do that and you're in. Maybe it sounds like the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the time of the Reformation. Put your money in the, in the box and you're good to go or your Aunt Sally will be sprung from purgatory, right? So we, we act like that kind of thing doesn't happen. It has happened multiple times throughout the history of the church. Um, but what, what was the man's problem? His view of the commandments was skin deep. He said to himself, oh, well, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done these outward things, although I think he most certainly had lied and done other things, but that's what he thought he had done. He had a very shallow view of God's law and thought that he had obeyed it in all things, and so it takes the Lord Jesus, we're going to see a little bit later in the sermon here, to teach the right view of God's law, including what we call the spirituality of the law, that it goes even to your thoughts and intents <coughs> of, of our hearts. But I think we don't give this commitment much thought for the same reason that the young, rich young ruler didn't. We think, well, you know, how complicated is it to not murder? Most of us probably think it's a pretty easy one to check off, you know, check the box uh, on, on that one. We, and because we don't think about it, really the reason we think that is because we don't think about the commitment very deeply. The reason that we think, oh, I've, I'm, I'm okay on that one, is because we've never really taken the time to consider what the commandment actually means and we really haven't taken the time in light of that to look at our own hearts and say, wow, you know, I've, I've broken that one more ways than I, than I can count, if I'm really honest. Uh, what is the essence of the commandment against murder? Again, it might seem rather obvious. 
Uh, but John Calvin sums it up this way. He says, the sum of this commandment is that we should not unjustly do violence to anyone. In other words, harm no one. In order, however, that God may the better restrain us from all injury of others, he propounds one particular form of it from which men's natural sense is abhorrent. For we all detest murder so as to recoil from those whose hands are polluted with blood as if they carried contagion with them. You know, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who murdered someone, uh, but, you know, that's, that's not usually the icebreaker you want is someone to say, oh, well, you know, what are you in for? Oh, I, you know, did this. You, whoa, okay, this is serious. This isn't just uh, something lesser than that. And so what Calvin is saying there, and he's, and he, he's certainly right, the way that God propounds, God could have said, harm no one, right? God, God could have, like the commandment against false witness, God could have just said, thou shalt not lie. He could have said, thou shalt not, or you shall not harm anyone. He would have been entirely right, however he wanted to, 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 to put it in his word, in his law. But he propounds it, to use Calvin's word, in the most severe form of it to show us the severity of it. Uh, that, that's really what he's doing. So murder is, is kind of an umbrella category containing everything under it that would be harmful to ourselves or others. In fact, this is true really of most, if not all, of the other commandments as well. Uh, the commandment against murder is framed in terms of the most severe form of that sin to show us and impress upon us the severity and seriousness of it. If you think about it, dishonesty, the commandment against, against bearing false witness, God again could have said, thou shalt not lie. It certainly does mean that. But why did God put it the way he did? Why did he say, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? Because he's showing by the, the form of lying that he expressly forbids how serious lying can be. If you were in a court of law, that's court of law type language. If someone is on trial for murder for a capital crime and they are convicted, maybe not in California, although it should be, um, what, what could the result be for that person? They could be unjustly put to death. That's why there's all kinds of, of stipulations in the Old Testament law and should be in ours as well about two or three witnesses and all these things. Nobody should be put to death on the, on the testimony of one witness in some ways. But you think about it. Like that's how much damage a lie can do. And in the same way, harming someone uh, can, can be the ultimate form of it in some ways, the end of their life as well. So um, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel for this morning in the sermon, we're going to follow uh, I'm going to cheat, so-called, and follow the time-tested wisdom of the Westminster Divines and outline our sermon this morning around what the Shorter Catechism does with the commandments, all of them really. So we're going to look at first what is required of us. What would God have us to do when he says thou shalt not murder? Uh, on the other flip side of that, what is forbidden? That might seem obvious, but maybe it's not. What is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? What are we to not do and then lastly, uh, my, my plan is to look at some, some very specific areas of application uh, of this commandment for our lives that maybe some of us haven't thought of, maybe you have. So the first thing that we turn our attention to is, is about the commandment against murder is, what it, is not just what it forbids, which is obvious on the surface, but what it positively requires of us. What would God positively have us, you and I, to do in light of this commandment? You, know, you might be tempted to look at the text of the commandment and and, you know, it is written in a negative form, thou shalt not. Some commandments are positive. 
remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It's a positive commandment. Here's what you should do. Honor your father and your mother. It's not written in a form of don't do this. It's do this. But uh, sometimes it's a negative commandment like this one is in the way it's written. We might think, well, if it's written negatively, all that means is I have to refrain from doing whatever that thing is, and that's all I have to worry about. But that's not the case. As a general rule, as the larger catechism puts it, uh, it says that as where a duty is commanded in God's law, where a duty is commanded, honor your father and mother, uh, the contrary sin is forbidden, and where a sin is forbidden, the contrary duty is commanded. You get what they're saying? Where, Where there's a negative prohibition, thou shalt not do something, it's not just not doing it. The opposite duty is implied. And where the duty is, is expressly set forth, honor father and mother, the opposite is forbidden by implication. That's the, the, one of the many rules for understanding God's, God's law. So when the commandment forbids murder or adultery or any such thing, there is implied within that prohibition uh, actual positive duties for us to do as well. So it's not just refraining from murder that's required, but what's the opposite of murder? That's, that's really what is required of us, the opposite of murder. And the opposite of murder is not just not killing someone. I know that would have been much easier to obey just not killing someone. That's, that's not the opposite of murder. So what we, what we are to do is we are positively to do what we can in God's providence to protect life, the life of ourselves and the life of our, of our neighbors. The Apostle Paul teaches us the same principle in Ephesians 4.25 Uh, Really, a couple times in Ephesians 4, Paul says in Ephesians 4.25 about lying. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, you know, turning away from lying, let each one of you do what? Speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And so when he says don't lie, he doesn't mean just don't talk. You know, it's, it's not just refraining from lying. It's actually positively speaking the truth. Uh, that is required of us. Likewise, Paul uses the same logic in the commandment against theft, doesn't he? You know, really, Paul, in, in some ways, in Ephesians 4, is kind of going through some of the commandments. He even quotes some of them. In Ephesians 4.28, talking about theft, he says this, Let the thief no longer steal. We would probably put a period there. You know, Just stop doing that. That's all you got to do is not do that. Let the, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but let him do what? But rather let him labor, that's, a, that, that's working hard, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's the implied duty in that commandment. It isn't just not stealing, and it isn't just don't steal to meet your needs, work hard to meet your needs, that's implied. Paul goes further than that. Instead of taking away something that belongs to someone else that they have worked for, you work to give to someone else who may be in need. That's the Christian standard. That is the biblical standard uh, for what our duty is in the opposite of of these things. And so uh, charity, not just work, is the opposite of theft. Charity, biblical charity, not some of the weird versions of it, uh, but actual right biblical charity is the opposite of theft Uh, The Shorter Catechism says the following about what's required in the Sixth Commandment. It says, question 68, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment requires all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. All lawful 
endeavors, every effort. It should be a priority for us if we are if we're sincerely trying to obey God's law in this. We should do whatever we can to preserve our own life and the lives of, of others. That means we who are believers in Christ ought to be the most pro-life people walking this earth. Now we, we throw that phrase around a lot, especially in Bible-believing churches, pro-life this. We talk about it in voting times. We're pro-life. And sometimes we mean by that basically we're anti-abortion. It includes that, but it should be radically far more than that. We should be the most pro-life people that anyone knows if we are genuinely Christian people. We who profess the name of Christ ought to be profoundly and thoroughly pro-life. Of course, um, what is and is not pro-life is not left to our imaginations, is it? It's one thing to use a label. It's another thing to use it properly and biblically. Um, if it's the word of God alone that must determine for us and define what it means to be pro-life. Lots of people call themselves pro-life, but they contradict scripture in how they go about it. First and foremost, we must use all lawful means at our disposal to preserve both our own lives and the lives of others. And notice it says lawful means. It's not left to our own imagination how we are to go about these things either. Uh, and certainly there it is speaking, when it says lawful means, it's referring to God's law. There are lots of things in, in every civil government in this world, especially ours right at the moment, that are legal according to the law of man that are not legal or not lawful according to the law of God. And as always should be the case, the book of Acts tells us this, uh, we must obey God rather than man when it comes to those. When, they're, when they are in conflict, we must obey God's law and not that of of man that very often contradicts God's law and is very often unjust in so many ways. Um, the right to self-defense, the right to defend your own life and your family's lives and the lives of your neighbors is hereby enshrined in the law of God. What does that look like? That may take some more discussion. It's not just our right. It's your duty. I have, I have had uh, discussions. I, I will not, I will omit the names to protect the guilty uh, of some with, with some foolish logic that I have heard. I, I, have, I have heard and read uh, different theologians and pastors and whatnot that would say, oh, if someone breaks into your home and is going to kill your family, well, well, it's, you know, no. If you are a, and I'll say, I'll say to the men, it's everybody's duty, but Christian husbands, fathers, it is your duty before God to protect your family. Period. Exclamation point. We, we are not to be pacifists in that regard. It's your duty before God to do what you can to protect them. Um, it's your duty to protect your neighbor's life when called upon in some ways to do it. There are many different aspects to that. And I would say in our days, most of us don't even know our neighbors. We, we even, do you even know your neighbors? How could you possibly be looking out for their good if we don't even know who they are? And don't know them. Uh, meeting the needs of others according to our actual ability is also hereby required of us. You know, very often I think, I don't know if you're like me, maybe hopefully you're not, but, um, you know, we think, well, I can't solve world hunger, so I'm just going to throw my hands up in the air. Like, that's not the point. The point is God and his providence may put someone in front of you uh, that is in need, in legitimate need, and we are to do what we can uh, to help meet their needs. We as believers in Christ ought to be not just the most pro-life people in the world, we should be the most charitable people in the world. 
That, that should be demonstrably true of us. People should think of Christians and not think of all the negative things they think of. They should think, wow, like they really go out of their way to help each other and to help those who are in need. And I believe that's still very often true of, of many sincere believers, despite what I think is excessive uh, and egregious taxation that's made it much more difficult to be charitable uh, in our day. Um, and not just that, but I think sometimes the way things are, are being done uh, in a political sense, so to speak, or in the civil realm, I think some of us have been conditioned not just by the scarcity of our own resources, but also by the political climate that we are in since the New Deal and the welfare state came about. We kind of, I think, in our worst moments, we think of charity and caring for the poor as the government's job, don't we? Isn't that kind of what we think? Oh, that's not, that's not my job. That's the government's job, despite the fact that the government does a terrible job at it. They, it just seems to increase whenever they try to, quote, unquote, help you. There's an old saying, we gave it the office. That's kind of what we think. Well, well I paid my taxes. That's what taxes are for. Let the government handle all the, the, uh, the homeless and all these kinds of things, uh, despite the fact, again, they do such a terrible job of it. And I think one of these things is, you know, the increase in, in godlessness in government here and elsewhere, uh, they have no motivation to end poverty. None. They, the more that you are dependent upon them to them, the better. And so they're not going to do the job the way you and I would do as believers. And so that just shouldn't be the case. Thomas Boston again points out that this commandment, obeying this commandment, includes not just preserving and protecting the physical lives of ourselves and others. That's what we normally think of. It also includes protecting the souls of ourselves and others as well. We should be just as, as mindful of the spiritual well-being and safety and life of ourselves and our neighbors as we are their physical well-being. That is something we should think about. Our own souls, he notes, that this requires of us. Like, Remember, it says our own lives and those of our neighbors. For our own souls, this is what he says this requires of us. One, the careful avoiding of all sin, which is the destruction of the soul. That's, part of, that's obeying the sixth commandment. And he also says, and the careful using of all the means of grace and holy exercises for the beginning, preserving, and promoting of spiritual life. To preserve your own life, first and foremost, starts with your soul. And yet how many go through life who would never put themselves in physical danger, physical harm's way, never give a second's thought to their, to their souls, to their standing before a holy God. We'd never stick our necks out to get physically injured, most of us. But how many neglect the preaching of the word? How many refuse to go somewhere where they might hear the gospel and take it to heart? That is self-murder, according to the scriptures. How many willfully neglect the means of grace, especially the preaching of the word and the word of God and his gospel on the Lord's day? How many of us give no thought to the preservation of the souls of our neighbors by neglecting those that we know, at least, by neglecting to call them to repentance and faith in Christ, by neglecting to even invite them to church or to go somewhere where they might hear the word of God taught? That's a start when it comes to that. Well, what, what is forbidden? Let's look at that side of things. What is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? Shorter Catechism 69 says, What is forbidden? The Sixth Commandment forbids the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever tends thereunto. 
It forbids the taking away of our own life. Notice it starts there. We might not think of that as where it should start. Forbids the taking away of our own lives or the lives of our neighbors unjustly or whatever tends thereunto. So the scriptures teach us clearly that the sixth commandment is about far more than the outward act of, of murder. The Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew 5 through 7, uh, tells us this in so many words. Matthew 5, 21 to 22, Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. What's he quoting? Exodus 20, 13, also Deuteronomy uh, 5. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The first half of that is scripture. The second half is, is not. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Think about that for just a minute. What's Jesus equating murder to? Hatred or unrighteous anger. Not all anger is sinful, but unrighteous anger. And even like saying things harmful to your neighbor. There's a lot of overlap between the commandments. Saying you fool, what, what is that an expression of? It's giving vent in, in our words to hatred in the heart. And Jesus is saying that's enough to get you into judgment. It's murder. You can murder with your words as well as with your, your heart is what Jesus says. Now, Jesus is correcting not the law of Moses, not the Ten Commandments. When he said, you've heard it was said to those of old, he's correcting the warped traditions and teachings of the Pharisees and scribes who added to God's law by their tradition. They were the ones who claimed to be the experts in God's word, teachers of God's law, but who nevertheless, even while teaching God's law, they, even about murder, they were plotting the death of Jesus. It's the most mind-boggling thing to think about. That, that while they're teaching God's law, at the same time, it says in very descriptive terms, they, they were plotting his destruction. That's the word the Gospels use. Like, we're, we're God's teachers. We're God's servant. Oh, gee, and, and of all the people to do that to, the Son of God himself, the Messiah, that they should have been the first in line to believe in when he came. How the words of, of, of Jeremiah 17, 9 uh, really ring true when you think about it. The heart is, is what? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, we, you can't know somebody else's heart. We don't even know our own hearts half the time. And we don't take the time to, self, to, to look at ourselves and examine ourselves to even try to know sometimes. Uh, but our hearts really are deceitful above all things Anybody ever says, just follow your heart, uh, bad, bad counsel. Exodus 20, 13, that Jesus quotes here, you shall not murder. Uh, what, what does he do then? He explains it in some detail, and he says to us that murder starts in the heart with hatred. Hatred is then the root cause of murder, and the outward sin of murder certainly makes one liable to judgment, as he says. But the Lord Jesus says, everyone who is angry with his brother will also be liable to the judgment. First John 3.15, we're looking at First John on other Sundays right now. First John 3.15, John says, everyone who hates his brother, and he's talking first and foremost about other believers, but it includes everything else, I think, too, by implication. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And then he adds something this. He says, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, 
And no one who is a murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And on the surface, what he's talking about there is those who profess to be Christians but hate other Christians. It's, it's a very serious sin. Who among us can possibly claim that we have never hated anyone? Not if we're honest. If that's the case, uh, there is not one of us truly who can say that we're innocent of the sin of murder, at least not inwardly speaking. And so we're all guilty. If we take the time to examine ourselves, we are all guilty of much greater sins than we might realize. We all have much more uh, material for repentance uh, of than we might realize. We have much more guilt before a holy God on our own than we might want to admit and so if I were to ask you this morning, are you a murderer? Most, I'm assuming we'd all say no, but we'd all be wrong. According to God's law, we have all murdered in such a way as to be guilty before, before God. We've all sinned and transgressed God's commandments, all of them. You know, as Jonathan was reading the Ten Commandments this morning, um, I hope that none of us here were thinking like the rich young ruler. I'm okay on that one. I'm okay on that one. That one I'm good. Oh, maybe that one I lied. I've told little white lies, you know, false witness. I've coveted here. No, as we read them, we should see in many ways, not just a here's what God would have you to do, how he would have you to live. We should also see it as a catalog of our sins, if we're honest. If we've looked at our own hearts and examined ourselves, we should see it as, as, as the catalog of the things that we have broken in God's law. Well, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died. In fact, Jesus was executed. He was murdered, the Bible says, by the hands of wicked men, put to death by wicked men, to save even murderers. Murderers like you and like me. David, you know, I know you're, when I say God, Jesus came to save murderers, maybe we, we instinctively switch and go, well, you just mean people that have hated people, right? No, there will be murderers, not ones who are unrepentant. There will be repentant murderers in heaven by the grace of God who have turned to faith in Christ for salvation. And why do I, how can I possibly say that? Well, you, one, you know it's true, but you know it's true because the scripture tells you it's true. David, King David, the man after God's own heart, was David a murderer? Did he, did he commit murder? Yes, he did. He, had your, he, he committed murder by use of, of someone else, right? He, he didn't strike him down himself with a sword. He didn't stab him in the back. He sent him to the front of the battle where it got hottest, and then ordered everybody else to back off and leave him exposed. David didn't actually physically murder him, but he murdered him. Just the same. And yet God forgave his sin by his grace. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, was trying to destroy the church. And when Stephen is killed, where do you see Saul? He's the coat bearer. He's the guy off to the side. Like, they're going to stone Stephen to death for preaching the gospel and Paul's like, let me hold your coat. You don't want your arm to be too encumbered when you're trying to throw these rocks and violently put this man to death for nothing but faith in Christ and preaching the gospel. And yet Saul was saved by the grace of God. In fact, Saul in 1 Timothy says that God made him an example, that God saved him just to show everybody how God was patient and would save even the chief of sinners, which is what Paul said that he is. There is abundant grace, mercy, and forgiveness to be found through faith in Jesus Christ, even for sins like murder. Jesus Christ and his spirit only can take hearts that are full of hatred and murder and cleanse them filling, them, filling us with the love that only comes from God. 
The Catechism says that this commandment forbids the taking away, quote, of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever tends thereunto. And so we are to avoid all willful acts of self-harm and certainly not to take our own lives. We must be watchful that we do no harm to our souls as well. Something we should think about more than we do. First Peter 2.11 says this. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, this is not your home. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And here it is. Which wage war against your soul. That's a word picture there. He doesn't just say they're kind of bad for you. He says they wage war against your soul. In other words, sin doesn't always seem to be on, on the surface of it. Sin is dangerous to us, even though we may not often perceive that danger. John Calvin's comment on this verse has always stuck with me. He says this, He, Peter, he reveals our carelessness in this respect in that while we anxiously avoid enemies from whom we fear danger to the body, right, we willingly allow enemies hurtful to the soul to destroy us. Indeed, we, as it were, stretch forth our neck to them. You know, if, if, if we have common sense, street sense, whatever, and you see somebody that you perceive as dangerous, you know, what's the, the you, you cross the street, you go on the other side of the street, you avoid going a certain place. If you think, if I go there, something bad could happen. And Calvin says, you'd never put your physical life in danger that way. And yet you, you stick your neck out to sin. You stick your neck out to things that are harmful to you in many in many ways. Are we abstaining from the lusts or passions of our flesh or are we sticking out our necks to sin? May the Lord Jesus Christ give us grace and, and mercy that we might have the eyes of faith to see the actual danger of sin for what it is. May he grant each of us mercy and repentance that we might live as sojourners and exiles in this world to the glory of God. Well, just briefly, I thought we should look at a few applications of this commandment. Not that we haven't already touched on a few of them in passing, uh, but uh, we can't possibly cover them all, and I will not uh, belabor the point in, in that regard. We, I was told, though, the time change meant we're supposed to be able to preach an extra hour, but I won't, I won't, I won't do that. Uh, as tempted as I am, I won't. Um, but when you think about that, that phrase in the catechism, or whatever tends thereunto, in other words, there are things that are not murderous in and of themselves, but they tend to go in that direction and tend to push you and others in that direction. And I think those are some things that we also need to think about. But some of them are more direct than others. Um, I already mentioned it once, but the obvious example uh, that comes to my mind is abortion. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to think about it. We like to kind of shield our eyes from the, the, un, the uh, ugly truth of it. Uh, abortion is the murder of babies. Plain and simple, that's what it is. We should be against it in every way. It's infanticide. No civilized, quote-unquote, people should practice an abomination like that. The fact that our nation is guilty of the slaughter of over 60 million babies, like that, by that vile practice, that should horrify us. We're, we're so used to it that we don't even get mad about it anymore. That should horrify us. That should anger us with a righteous kind of anger. We should pray fervently for its end. On a regular basis, we should take every lawful measure to seek to put an end to it in our nation. This should greatly influence, hate to say it, how you vote. 
There's no, there's no area of your life, even the, pol- the political area, that is off limits to the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if there is a political way to end abortion, it should be done. There were ways to end slavery, and some of those were political, and some even involved war, didn't they? And yet it was a good thing that that is no longer uh, practiced in our country. We should take all lawful measures to seek its end. Uh, that should greatly influence how we vote as well. Even if that isn't the main thing, it certainly is not excluded. A more recent issue of something that tends toward the destruction of life that comes to my mind and you almost can't help but think about it is, is the trans movement, especially involving kids. Many are doing great bodily and spiritual harm to themselves through this wicked ideology. Children, children who can't even get their ears pierced without parental consent in our country are being given hormone treatments like puberty blockers that will have a devastating effect on their health or even having surgeries to try to, to change their gender as if that was even possible. And it's doing irreversible damage. There is actually a book by that title I'll recommend to your reading. It's not a Christian book, but it's a very eye-opening book about this practice. It does irreversible damage. There's no undoing it. And there are, thankfully, a good number of people who are coming out of that movement and, and kind of make, ringing the alarm bell and say, hey, I, I was deceived into doing this, and look at the harm it's done to me. And they're trying to keep other people from going down that same road. Uh, we should be speaking up and supporting such people as that. Uh, but think about this. Many of the people who have been deceived into that kind of a, of a, of a lifestyle and practice, what do they end up doing? I don't have the numbers in front of me, but many, like many of them end up taking their own lives because of regret. They realize the harm they've done to themselves. They don't see a way out, and they, they kill themselves. It's, this lends or tends thereunto, and we should oppose it because we love our neighbors. If we really love our neighbors, we should oppose that with everything that we can in a lawful way. What about capital punishment? Many oppose capital punishment as if it were itself murder. Um, and, and yet God's word, I believe, clearly teaches that a just punishment for the sin of murder is capital punishment. Genesis 9:6 it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Now this is not revenge. This is not uh, us taking vengeance into our own hands. That only belongs to God. God says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. You don't take it into your own hands. Uh, but it, it's speaking of capital punishment, God's ordained means. The, the magistrate, so to speak, has, does not have the sword in vain, is what Paul says. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, he says this, We are guilty of murder by not executing the law upon capital offenders. A felon, having committed six murders, the judge may be said to be guilty of five of them because he did not execute the felon for his first offense. It's a hard thing to think about, but it's true. Like, we, how, how often have we seen this play out in our country in recent years? People have already murdered one, and they're let out to do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again, and nobody seems to care for the victims. It should not be the case. It is a, it is a harboring of murder. It is a causing of murder to keep on happening. There are many other examples we can consider the right to self-defense, uh, the, the just war theory, all these things. 
But this should get us thinking about these things. How, how many different areas God's word applies to in his commandments? Even the commandment against, against murder. How often do we do things that harm ourselves? You know, we, you think about, uh, think about drunkenness, you think about substance abuse, which many of us are, are fighting against in our own lives and things. Uh, when you're, if you are thinking along those lines, if you are seeking repentance in that area, one of the things you should think about is it's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. God does not want me to harm myself. Even that tends to self-harm and the harm of, of others, doesn't it? So if we love ourselves as we should, rightly, and love our neighbors as we should, as, as we love ourselves, Jesus says, even that would be something that falls under that category. May the Lord Jesus Christ give us all grace to examine ourselves in the light of his word, to sincerely repent of the ways in which we may have transgressed this commandment. And as we've seen, there are many more ways to transgress it than we might have originally thought. May we, everybody who believes in Christ here this morning, may we seek to preserve our lives and the lives of others, and especially that, that others, our neighbors, as well as ourselves, might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen.